Hello, my friends. Today we talked about loudness. I think we're going to do at least one more of these um, because it's such an interesting topic and you guys get to see me actually learn as we go. Um, John has a lot of knowledge. I have some. I've been doing a lot of internet sleuthing trying to learn about it, but it's an interesting concept because it's so conceptual. So we spend most of this first hour just kind of talking about definitions and concepts and philosophies behind what we're trying to do. There's a lot going on with the streaming services and a lot of ways that people can consume the music we make. Um, so it's worth understanding all those technicalities before we get into things like clippers and how to get the most volume and keep your transients and all that stuff, which we'll get into next week. Um, we've been working a lot behind the scenes, getting the Discord server up, getting the website going. Um, going to have a lot of that rolling out in the next week or so. So look forward to that. Um, really appreciate you guys sharing clips, sharing full episodes on your Instagram. Also got the YouTube going, starting to build a little bit of an audience on YouTube. If you guys are, uh, on all these different platforms, please subscribe, leave us comments, share it with people. Really appreciate everything you guys are doing to participate in this little community we're building. So anyway, here is the first hour on loudness with John. Oh, also, um, a few people have asked, I am using my U47, my 1950s U47 to record these intros, um, pretty clean into the computer and a little bit of, uh, a little bit of compression. Don't tell John it's, uh, our comp it's waves. Don't tell him. Howdy, howdy. So, uh, we are going to talk about loudness, um, now I'll, I'll give people, I, I post on my story a little bit, but I was digging into it this morning and immediately was like, I don't know what, wait, what's going on. So then I called John and I'll, 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 I'll walk through what I did because of course the conclusion was let's have this conversation on, uh, on the, uh, on the stream. But of course I, I, uh, reference things off Spotify, reference MP3s, that sort of thing. And when I play something off Spotify, um, everything just hits zero. Uh, and I'm like, well, if they're turning things down because of LUFS, why is the MP3 version or the, you know, the download, the AAC version playing at the same volume? And it turns out I don't have the loudness uh, normalization on Spotify, um, mm -hmm. which then you told me that I, uh, or I think you said I must have manually turned it off at some point because it it's, it's automatic on Spotify, but on Apple, it is not. So... Then we started getting into, okay, so this is really interesting and confusing, and this is why people, um, I think, one of the many reasons people are so confused about the concept of loudness and what streaming services are doing, because, of course, not only do they have different standards, but they default differently. I don't know what Tidal does, I don't know what the Amazon streaming service does, but it seems that the two, yeah. the two main streaming services, uh, Spotify and Apple, um, have different defaults in addition to different standards uh, and, uh, that's fucking confusing and annoying. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's start, uh, by the way, uh, with the amount of questions we got and the amount of specific stuff, I think this is going to be a two-parter as well. This will be loudness part one, uh, and then we will continue it next week. Cause I think it's worth talking conceptually, uh, more yeah. this week. And then we can get into specifics of how to use clippers and how to maintain transients and that sort of thing, which yeah. were a lot, a lot of great questions from people about that. Um, so let's just go first, the basic definition. Loudness is a uh, subjective conceptual, uh, has a subjective conceptual uh, definition. It is different than volume, which can be measured. Um, volume is a literal measurement of, uh, well, I guess 
SPL decibels. There's different ways to measure it, but it's the an yeah. actual measurable amount of um, sound. Uh, and loudness is a subjective thing. How loud does something feel? How, uh, so loudness has all these different ways to measure it. Uh, RMS, LUFS, different versions of RMS and LUFS, which are basically different ways because the human ear does not perceive things in a simple measurement sort of way. We've talked about this before, the Fletcher-Munson curve, which um, has a few interesting applications. Basically, there are frequency ranges that human beings perceive more intensely than others. So the, the frequency range of like traditionally the telephone, which is sort of like one to 5K, um, people, uh, people perceive that much louder than they perceive uh, low frequencies. Um, also, as volume goes up, the human ear naturally compresses and distorts, and that mm -hmm. changes the uh, frequency response. So as things get louder, you tend to, your ear protects itself by essentially being a multiband compressor distortion device that keeps your ears from being blown out by mid-range. So as things get louder, mid-range appears to not be as loud. That's also why when you have ear fatigue, um, you tend to make things brighter and more mid-range and more harsh because that's the first thing to get diminished when you your ears get tired. So there's all these interesting different... And so what, what loudness is, LUFS, RMS, these are um, ways that people have devised to measure how loud something actually feels rather than just say that the top peak is it, you know, X dB, um, how something feels in a sustained way, in a short-term way, in a long-term way. So I just want to start with that framework. Please, please give some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's to me in that the application um, that will consider it most important is the average loudness measurement um, across the time of a song between all sections, between the bridge, the hook, the verse, the intro, the outro, right? So that's what the math is doing on an LUFS meter or an LKFS meter or an RMS meter, like you said. All of these things are basically measuring the same thing, which is the average apparent or measurable loudness uh, of a song. And each streaming service, DSP, um, that we use is doing something different in, in the way that they, uh, you know, distribute our records. And do we want to consider it? Yes. Do we have to play by the rules? Not always. But again, like we talk about on this podcast a lot in this conversation, is you can't break the rules if you don't understand them. So it's worth going through it on a one-part, two-part, three-part um, episode series to discuss, well, why would we want to follow it? For what reasons? And that's, that's just how I kind of apply all um, my perspective and thought on the, you know, on the creation process in general. So why stop here? This is a bit more technical than other, um, other things that we talk about, but I have some creative um, and new ways, I think, to discuss them and, and apply them versus what the numbers really mean. And I think it's important to know some of the numbers, and we've talked about that on previous episodes, so I don't know if we have to go into it necessarily again, but depending on if you have it on or off changes everything. The, the norm uh, normalization on. The normalization. Off. Yeah. And if you, um, and, and at any step of the way, these software platforms um, can also 
update and change that default function. So we might not know um, if we have it or not. So, yeah, so that, that is the, the frustrating part of this is, and I, I don't feel like I have a complete handle on this, so I think we should probably rehash sure. some stuff, if only for me, um, but I assume other people will be in the same boat. Um, mm -hmm. When we're talking about normalization, the streaming services have the ability to turn on and off their, you know, th this idea that they will take uh, the LUFS measurement of all these recordings, some recordings from decades ago, some recordings from 10 years ago, from some recordings from yesterday, um, which all prior to streaming were mastered for a digital limit of zero dB from a negative number up to zero dB. And so what happened over the course of the last bunch of decades is people started to compress and distort and limit even more. So when everything was played at zero, the stuff that was compressing at a smaller dy dynamic range and could be pushed closer to zero would appear louder next to other recordings. If you yes. listen to something like a Pink Floyd record on a CD and then put uh, uh, or, a, or an iTunes download, uh, and then you put up uh, Skrillex or you put up uh, a new EDM record or something, really anything, rock records as well, things were so much louder but had much less dynamic range. But now we're getting to the point where there is a, and, and it would feel louder. The loudness yeah. would be bigger between something from the 70s, like a Pink Floyd record to a Skrillex record. But now the streaming services give you the option. I thought it was just by default you had to turn it off, but give you the option to take, okay, how loud does this feel? How loud does this feel? Does this feel, let's, let's equalize them in some way. Maybe equalization is not the right word because it well, means something else, but let's, let's make it so when you're thumbing through songs on Spotify, you have an apparent loudness that is equal. And the way that they're using, uh, the way that they measure that is LUFS, but there are other ways to do it. RMS is one way, even like a VU meter, which doesn't have uh, as much of the, the, when the pin moves, it doesn't uh, hit every attack the same way. So VU meter is sort of apparent loudness as well. But, um, well, so, so what happens from here is that now as record makers, if the streaming services are gonna take the super dynamic recording and the super compressed limited recording and even out the sound, does that change how we think about how we make records? And the answer is, to some extent, it has to be yes. Yeah. But also, if you've had three decades of people moving toward making records like this, there's also an inherent sonic quality that happens when you squish dynamic range, when you use limiting compression, uh, distortion, uh, saturation, all of that, which is now not only pleasing in some respects, but also people are used to it. So if you make a super, super dynamic recording that just sounds like, uh, you know, an old uncompressed Pink Floyd record, it will sound like an anomaly. Maybe that's good in some, in some cases, because that's cool. But one of the things that John and I talk about a lot is how do you get some of the greatness out of the, the, the breathing room you get from having dynamics, but in the context of a modern, uh, sonic palette and ear whatever ear palette is for people that, that so people are used to a certain kind of sound and even within all of this the streaming service it turns out sometimes they default to doing this sometimes they don't they do it in slightly different ways and the shit is confusing um, <laughs> it is confusing but it's uh, let's go back to your let's take a step back and go yeah, back please. to your thumbing thumbing through the, the streaming platform for new music let's take that one step further and say playlists, right? You're making playlists and you keep, you do an auto ad, you just keep adding to your playlist. You're, you're not actually DJing, but they're, they're implying that you're, you're DJing and you're balancing levels and volume. And that's what a DJ would do. It's why you had a mixer and you had fader. So they're, right. they're 
auto fading option is there as well to uh to i guess i hate that uh, fucking thing yeah it's so dumb but like you're at a party do you want a song to end another one stop no you don't you want a dj at the party to do this so they have an auto fade where they literally it's like they fade out the last two seconds of whatever the song and the fade in the last two there's no you can well, you can change. I believe you can change change the parameter on some of the sure, platforms. Yeah. I've I've had good and bad experiences with auto fade, but you never want the party to stop. You never want music to stop. So you're having a dinner party, and like in the middle of an awkward pause where someone says some like dark humor thing that normally would just go under the <laughs> radar. It's like that's the whole the the moment when the music stops. Like we want to mitigate yeah. all the possibilities of anything like this happening. So these are features for the consumer that are yes. added. This is the, the, yeah. Exactly my point. And Spotify, Apple Music, uh, title. These are for the consumer. These are not for the pro audio creator. It's like let's let's take ourselves out of the equation here. Yep. But at the same time, our job is to, as Tony Maserati has quoted up in my studio, is to understand the limits of technology. That's the engineer's job. That's my job. That's the mastering engineer's job. So yep. I want to know the numbers. I'm more lenient now than I was last year. I've changed my mind about certain things, but in regards to changing my mind, I still understand the importance of that and the possibility of that occurring. So I think that there's a sweet spot and there are tricks to do like what we call this title. It's not really loudness, it's perceived loudness because the numbers almost don't matter to a degree. We can go deeper into that physically speaking if a number is too high. For example, I think minus five and above, I don't think you can actually get a fully extended 60 hertz cycle. So you're having fake upper harmonic bass only in your mixes. You don't have sub, right? That's just physics of energy. There's no room. Or if you do have a full 60 hertz cycle, you won't have enough of the mid-range and high end to give you the excitement to compete on these uh, against these algorithms, right? So there's a, there's a sacrifice that's going to be happening. Um, you're also going to be sacrificing transients to get things loud. So you have to pick your poison. Like, what do you want to lose? And I think there's a sweet spot that the, that is, um, the algorithms are actually favoring around this zone of kind of minus 10, minus 12, like maybe as high as minus nine, where um, it actually winds up sounding louder uh, on those platforms and also on radio and also on vinyl. Like it, it's, it seems to be splitting um, and starting the needle on all these platforms at that range. Now, granted, put on a minus six Travis Scott record, there's a ton of energy. I'm just saying that there's a way to do a minus nine, minus 10 Travis Scott record with the same perceived energy with, with tricks that maybe we get into next week, maybe we touch on today. But I, I like today being more open and philosophical and conceptual about what we're talking about here. I think that's, yeah, I think that's all, that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm on board with all of that. Um, I wonder, so the thing that I kind of realized today which maybe many other people have realized, and, and you certainly have because you, you, you have so much more output than I do uh, as a mixer, um, that I could have a, a great sounding mix at minus 10 LUFS. So perceived loudness at minus 10. Who cares where the peaking is? I assume it's going to be zero. But minus zero. 10 minus ten is where, the, uh, where it comes in at loudness. And I put on a Post Malone record or something that's at like minus six or minus seven. If I master my record, you know, three or four dB hotter, so it has the same LUFS, I will lose some transients, I will lose some headroom, I might lose a little low end or lose some amount of dynamics. Um, and then when it is downloaded as an MP3, or it's played off a streaming service without loudness normalization, they will sound pretty close to each other. But 
if I leave it at minus 10, don't do the chopping of transients by limiting it like crazy up to minus six. If I leave it at minus 10, put on the streaming service and there's loudness normalization, my track's going to sound bigger because it has all this extra headroom and yes. it has all these extra transients. But if loudness normalization is off, it'll sound quieter. Yeah. That's annoying as fuck. It's annoying as fuck. That's super, super annoying. It should be on or off. I think it should be on. I kind of like it. I think it's great. I mean, I think ultimately... Personally, it, I know people will push back against that. I don't think one's wrong or right. I, I, I kind of like it for the example that we're talking about where people aren't even listening to albums. They're listening to their own curated playlists most often. And unless you're sitting there as a human volume knob, which we used to do in our car, like that, we, that was always my yeah. argument for like, it's okay to be quieter because just turn up the volume one click. If you're yeah. not sitting at your computer, if you're not like thumbing through your pocket for your phone, like you kind of want your experience to be cohesive. So yeah. I, I understand that and it's for the consumer, but that, that's all that we do music for anyway. You know? Yeah, fun fundamentally, fundamentally, and this is an important thing and not everybody agrees on this, but I think they should. <laughs> I mean, I very rarely tell people what they should think. Um, yeah. We are music consumers before we are music creators. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you become a creator first, you're, you, I've, I've never met anybody that, that is a creator first that makes anything that I like. Yeah. You have to be a lover of music and a consumer first. And yeah. whether you agree with exactly how Spotify is measuring things or whatever, like you got to go, you got to go from consumer standpoint. This is why I love the fact that everybody has GarageBand and everybody can make a recording. As much as that means there's a lot of extra crap out there, it just means that lots more people are making things. And I would like yeah. a world where we go back to the primitive state pre-technology where everybody is just like singing and dancing and eating food around a fire. Maybe it's not a fire, but just like everybody makes music, everybody sings, everybody dances. Like that's what I would like the world to be. That's, that's what human beings fundamentally are. That's why music is such a powerful thing. So I think making sure that people are thinking of it, thinking of things from the consumer standpoint, whether you're writing a lyric, whether you're producing a song, whether you're mastering a record, ultimately we're, we're, or I should say fundamentally, we're music fans first. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I think the normalization thing is great. And the, the challenge with this whole topic is that it isn't either way. So no matter what you do, you have to split the difference. I used to think, okay, well, that's cool. We'll just do a softer master with more transients for the streaming services. But the truth is you can't just do that because mm -hmm. some people might have normalization on, some people might have normalization off. Do you just that's why, that's why there's a sweet spot. Yeah. So the sweet spot is basically figuring out how to not jam as much possible level as the loudest records, but also if they need to compete, they're close enough. Yes. That's that's essentially within, the idea. within one or two clicks on your on your volume knob is I think what I'm talking about with the sweet spot. And and also at the same time, it might just feel louder automatically by the amount of remaining transients and a certain amount of density that can be there perceived, right? It doesn't have to be numerically loud to feel loud, right? And that's what we can yeah. kind of get into and understand. Um, that's what I mean. I think there's a sweet spot where, like, for example, um, this record Without You by The Kid Leroy, no drums in it, minus 10 record. Um, I got hit up by my homie, the producer Blake, uh, the other day that's like, yo, why does Without You sound louder than everything else on the top 10? It's like, I don't know. I think I found the sweet spot. You know, I think I understand. There's no drums, but it the helps, guitar has helps, so, helps so many transients. No drums. 
I, I guess so. I yeah. I don't I don't that I mean I've heard a lot of no drum records that are way too quiet. You still have to understand density because a guitar yeah. and vocal song that and piano these like um, these organic recorded instruments don't have that that organic density that a pop record needs to have to compete. So no, I, I don't I don't agree. I think it's actually harder in some sense to get to get that to be the case where it still sounds aggressive enough to be considered top forty or pop uh, pop music. I think it's it's harder to fill in those gaps. Um, well, and that's what saturation does. I, I think I know what you mean. I think I, I disagree because fundamentally, and we could talk about this too. When you talk about, maybe we should talk about density a little bit. The a lot of times, what what uh, somebody asked. Let's, let's see. There's there's a, there are a million fucking great questions. Somebody asked, Manu asked, why does my mix sound quieter in the same LUFS level than the other mixes? At the, like you don't have <laughs> you don't have transients. Well, so that that's a part of it, I think. And also, uh, the more things you have in a mix, the more things you have competing, the less you can have them featured. So there's a lot of one of the things we talked about early on in, now we're just getting into some techniques, but I think it's really important that, let, maybe, let's take a step back. Let's talk about density. Density mm -hmm. as a concept. Density both in the density of a single sound and the density of a mix. And we've talked about these sort of things a lot before, but a big part of perceived loudness is actually clarity and transients are a big part of that. If you can actually hear the little, the little point on the end of a snare drum, um, even though you could compress it and make it louder with the same loudness, if you have a little bit extra transient, it's going to poke out and you're going to hear it more clearly. And the well, same, go ahead. You no, know, here's a, here's something that I, I'm just reading in this, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett book, seven and a half lessons about the brain. The chapter I just read yesterday um, is about predictions, and I'm equating it to this subject matter. I'm equating it to all things audio when it comes to demoitis to loudness, which is that transients help the brain make predictions, right? The, the brain recognizes familiar sounds of transients. It's, it's timbre. It's like, oh, I know that guitar. And to me, that's kind of all about all what pop music is about. It's the art of making like the same feelings and emotions that we've felt a million other times said, sound, and feel slightly different so it feels new. But it's all the same things. We're covering the same subject matter. We're using the same instruments. We're using the same arrangements. We're using a lot of the same things. But our brain predicts it and it says, I like it. Oh, I've heard a song like this. I've heard a sound like this. And that's transients. The transients are the sound. I mean, obviously there's there's the envelope of a sound and you have the sustain, the release, the decay, and like what a synthesizer is all about. But that attack or lack thereof is what determines a sound uh, to the ear right to begin with. When you talk about the compressor and the threshold that's, that, that triggers our, our nervous system to have some sort of response is the transient. So without them, it to me, when it gets too loud, it just sounds like noise. And I mean that I mean that philosophically. Obviously, I can hear what sounds are being created, but it just it's so loud that it's distracting, disorienting, and not in like a psychedelic, cool, vibey way. In a what? Like, how do you listen to a whole album at that loud? It's exhausting. Um, I used to feel that way about or like Katy Perry albums. Like the songs are so good, but you can't listen straight through a Katy Perry album. It's just mm. tell anybody tell me you you can and like 
good for you. You you have the nervous system of a of a lion. Um, I guess you could just well, take well, so much stress. Part of that too is that they're not. I mean, obviously, I'm sure that lots of people uh, in the Katy Perry camp would like the albums to be listened to all the way through, but they are made as singles. They're made yes. as standalone. But that's what I'm maximized. talking about. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's the grab attention. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not to sustain um, a listen. Where when we're talking about this normalization aspect, is it's to sustain listen uh, throughout time, and they're actually bringing it down to a point where your body and your nervous system can handle it longer. Even a metal record brought down, like there's still that angst and that tension, but it's it's not exhausting to your ears for that much longer. I, I think it's actually a, a good thing for music in, in a lot of ways because of that. But when you get things louder, the, the louder and louder you go, the, the less transients you can physically have. Because the, the, the tools to do that are transient uh, um, uh, reducers. Right. So you have to know the sweet spot to allow all of it to happen at the same time. To get more volume, uh, you are necessarily uh, volume compared to a digital limit of zero. You are going to sacrifice transients. That's and if you're sacrificing more yes. than transients, then it's just like pure distortion. But transients, yes. I think you made a good point. I, I would say it maybe that transients are what anchor sounds. And now certainly if you have a soft Juno pad with a slow attack, it doesn't have any transients. And there is a part of that that's emotional and effective and all that. But yes. so many sounds, the the voice, a guitar, a, but the um, lack of transient uh, drums, is the obviously. transient. The lack of transient, the shape of the transient is still the transient. Yeah. Right. Yep. So it you know that soft, spooky, atmospheric Juno pad from its lack of, right? So your body your, your your brain is predicting the fact that that's what that is. It understands what that is because it's heard it. It, it's heard, uh, you know, it's her deep, rich 80s ballads. Like it understands that, but it also understands the guitar, right? So if you now are starting to hear guitars 50, 60, 70 years later and they don't have the transient, you actually might not know that it's a guitar. That's, that's what I'm getting well, so at. As the evolution yeah, yeah. of things gets yeah. louder and louder, the distinguishability of what instrument is is going to be reduced and go backwards. And then music changes. I'm, I'm arguing for the worst. Yeah. So I and 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 I think you're correct on all that. And it's interesting to tie that in with with what I mentioned earlier, which is as people have made records trying to be louder and louder and reducing transients, adding compression, adding distortion, it's also become part of the way people like hearing records. So that familiarity. So the idea that you know drums or guitars or whatever the instrument is has a lot of transients doesn't sound like a guitar that's in a room most of the time doesn't sound like a certainly doesn't sound like a drum kit in a room um mm -hmm. and so you know the our job as record makers as engineers producers mixers whatever sonic architects is to figure out how much of that original sound we try to bring through versus how much are we manipulating a sound because you know you, you can have a a drum that has no transient and that might be a cool, effective sound. The question is, where will you make deliberate decisions? I'm saying you generally to people, make deliberate decisions about when and how you're gonna remove transients or do some sort of sonic architecting, sound design stuff, because there is something very important about the anchoring of hearing transients in your sounds. Um, yes. And it will give a depth and uh, a less ear fatigue to the listener um yes. and that's kind of what we're always on about for the last six months <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs>
I mean, I've been on it for years, you yeah. know, like we finally started these conversations and it's pretty amazing that, that people are listening and paying attention. But I just been on this for so long because I, I, I witnessed the, the change of it. And, and as I said earlier, um, it's my job. It's our job as engineers to, to create the maximal emotional connection to the record as possible. And that is that, that has been challenged, um, by this normalization aspect to music. It has been challenged because there's no one way to do it, uh, but the, the outcome is the same. We just want people to connect and we want people to connect with the emotion that is, it, that is baked into the record. Not like, uh, I don't mean that a more dynamic record has to feel soft, right? Like I yeah. think more dynamic, I think Usher hits hard and it's dynamic as fuck, right? Yeah. I think that, I always go back to that Confessions record. You put on Burn, and that shit is soft lyrically and emotionally, but it hits hard. Like those drums hit, and it really makes you feel like I'm, I was singing, uh, singing it out loud my window, like fucking crying the other day. It's just so good. It's like it, that's that's what a hard record does, but it's on, in a soft context. It's dynamic. It's loud enough. It's all the right things. That's why I always come back to that example. Same with we talked last week about the Phoebe Bridges record and those vocal effects. Similar thing. It's not too loud. It hits all the emotional points it, it hits all those nerve endings to make you feel what it's supposed to make you feel and if it was too loud it wouldn't do it would you say that uh, somebody actually specifically asked about that uh, that usher album that, that you and i both love so much um yeah would you say that the main difference between that and contemporary records that uh that don't quite hit as hard in the same kind of genre is that basically like you said it's a click or two less smashed and so it's just preserved more transients they're pretty exactly. simple arrangements and yep. not not yeah it's basically just that okay I, I i think that the main problem is and we talk about this a lot is producers or songwriters that aren't engineers putting a limiter on and then every at the beginning of the the first day and then that being what the artist and the manager and the a and r and everybody's living with and everyone says, hey, what happened to version one? That seems to be why records now are being made just shy of too loud, in my opinion. I like loud. I love Travis Scott. I love that it's loud. I'm not trying to hate on that at all. I think that they would still translate with the right amount of energy one or two clicks lower. That's all. Yeah, there's a lot of people asking a lot of questions about where do I deliver my mixes at? Where do I deliver the masters? Does John do this? Do you guys do that? And maybe we get into that more the second week, but I, I don't think that's as important um, mm -hmm. to talk about. Well, maybe about. some of it, maybe some so, of some, it is. Some of it is, but a lot of that is dependent on where you are in the process um, and your relationship with a mastering engineer. Um, and that's a conversation you and I've had, uh, a little bit before your, your relationship with Dale Becker and, um, and understanding what you're trying to achieve with him. And that's a process that takes time and takes, um, you know, takes an yeah. investment of, of trial and error and lots of records. And so maybe we can get, we can get more into that later, but I want to just uh, touch on what Kate Cutler just said, tracking engineers Please. unknowingly butterfly affecting us. I think there's some truth to that. I also wouldn't put the blame fully on the engineer and the tracking engineer because you don't know who in the room is making the decision to say, yo, make that shit louder. Like, I got to send it out, make it louder. Like, I'm imagining because I've done it. I've been in the room. Producers want that. Yeah. I don't know if the engineer wants to do it. So in defense of the engineer community, I don't want to put full blame on them. It's, it's everyone. Um, it's, it's everyone. It's, 
we, we have to we have to achieve a higher level when somebody asks clicks we mean literally like click the volume two things yeah yeah, yeah. Not, like not 27 a, not, to 28 different you know yeah just going on your, just on your literally going stereo. Tick, tick or going click click or whatever um, yeah, yeah yeah that's a it's a a term of art as they say yeah um yeah i think we just have to as a community be better about understanding that the goal ultimately is the finished product the finished product to what the consumer is going to hear. And if you start the process off by trying to make your rough mix stupid, stupid, stupid loud, you're going to get people. Look, if the song is great, it's not going to matter if it's three or four dB quieter. It's just not. I've had that happen a bunch. If the song is amazing, it doesn't matter. Yeah. By pushing by pushing productions and the level of your rough mixes up, um, you're just hampering the ability of the people down the line or you, you included uh, the ability to make something dynamic and great sounding. Um, uh, let's so just say, let's just say a blankets. I think a blanket statement is loudness doesn't make a hit. <laughs> yeah. Loudness doesn't make. A, <laughs> yes. Uh, loudness doesn't make a great song. Loudness does not make a lot of the things that a great record can do without it being super loud. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about density which we brought up a little bit before. Um, when I think of, and maybe I'll just wax poetic and see, see what you think and, and give me your reaction. When I think of density, I think of, I kind of think of loudness actually. Um, and I know they're not exactly the same thing. And again, we're also talking about perception. We're not talking about things that really can be measured. Um, but density in a mix, meaning either how thick, how, how much... Uh, dynamic and frequency range a particular sound takes up and or how sounds add up together. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the one of the simple answers, at least in my experience, um, somebody asked about why does my mix sound softer at the same LUFS as another mix is often because the mix itself is not very good in terms of having or the arrangements. Arrangement. Right, arrangement That's about to say that. as well, where if a vocal is here, and a guitar part is right on top of it, and there's a synth part that's playing one of the similar notes, all of a sudden you have things competing in the same frequency range, and not just EQ, but arrangement-wise, that if you solve those problems, things fit in as a puzzle much better, and you can have the lead vocal, which was competing with all these things, perceives to be popping out even more, and the things competing with it are gone, and you can actually get more headroom out of it. I think... Yeah a lot of the things that a lot of the ways that people try to get loudness with limiters and compressors and saturators and things like that. A lot of that stuff, when I hear mixes, when I get rough mixes, when I get productions to finish, it's people not making space in an arrangement and EQ yes. wise for the different aspects of a mix. Well, I find well, that to be and, a, the major thing. Yeah. Well, LUFS and, and measurements don't, um, uh, well, they prioritize, you know, in different regions. So you can have a minus five LUFS that's only sub frequencies, or you can have a minus five that has no sub frequencies and everything between two and six K, right? One and five K, all that. So yep. it prioritizes those regions and it determines it based on how much are in each, um, each, each frequency band. So if someone's like, if someone says, I have the same LUFS as this mix, and I ask them to send both, and one has, like six dB more of sub frequencies than 
the other record is more high mid, uh, you know, related, uh, th- sorry, sorry, um, uh, focused, then they're not going to be related at all. Right. So y- y- it's not a one size fits all measurement. Yes. And that's what people that's have to really understand. important. Really important. And even though LUFS is, has some slight extra weight to low end or it allows for a little more, it's very subtle. It's like it's a DB or two with respect to the, so LUFS gives you a little more room in the low end, but all, all the more fundamental things about making space in an arrangement and space with EQ using filtering and things like that will yield you much more loudness. I think my point, uh, and I think you're absolutely right on that, is also within a certain frequency range, if your vocal is sitting, if the sort of meat and volume of your vocal is sitting between 600 and 1,000 cycles and you have nothing else in that range, in the arrangement, you're going to have more room for your vocal to really sit out. Not just it's going to perceive to uh, be perceived to be louder because it's the only thing sitting there, but also you're going to get to feature it a little bit more because if you had two other things in the same frequency range, the sum total that's going to be added up there is going to be quieter because you just, you know, just by math. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of that that happens in density with mixing where there's the density of trying to add saturation, which, which you and I talk about a lot. You're big on saturation over compression to achieve density. Um, and yeah. additive, additive, excite, excitement, saturation with exciters specifically to get this density. Mm-hmm. And the flip side is also things like filtering and uh, dynamic EQ, which pull out frequencies that are getting in the way of other things. Yes. Um, so it's a combination of both of this, of adding density and removing elements to clear the way for something to be more focused. And I think that mm-hmm. that will help people like spending a huge amount of time on that will help way more than the right limiter plugin, which will just kill your transients slightly better than something else killing your transients. Yeah. Let's, let's think about exactly. Let's think about arrangement. Let's think about, okay, you have a Rhodes, you have a B3 organ in the same, uh, uh, you know, fingering range. You have a, a bass guitar, not a sub bass, a bass guitar, and you have a cello doing some sort of string pad. Good luck. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> you're, you're so dense in everywhere between 90 hertz and 1K that that's going to feel loud to you, but there's nothing above that in the presence, right? That's not a proper arrangement. That's a musical thought and idea that has not been produced correctly yet. Maybe you voice the organ up just a little bit, Maybe you use a sub bass instead of a bass guitar. I know you're in a band and you want to play the bass. Do that live. Try a Moog to. bass. You know, whatever, or do both and 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 do the bass higher up uh, an octave on the neck and and just think differently about your arrangement. And that's how you'll maintain density. We need sound in all ranges of the frequency spectrum for this all to work and for music to connect. I mean, if you only have a sub bass and a vocal, then on the phone it's going to be an acapella right? Like we, that's an extreme. Um, if we have no bass and just an acoustic guitar and a vocal, that's cool, but that's an acoustic version of a song. Uh, that's, you know, and this is all for a different time. That's probably not going to compete against other records. So we just have to think differently about arrangement. And there are tricks that we'll get into next week on how to bring density, um, with, uh, as, as Matt and I like to refer to as sonic architecting, it's sound design. Um, I think that there are, are tri- uh, tricks and tips, tricks and tips 
it's funny words to say <laughs> together that we can give you that I can give you. Um, we can answer some specific questions about that. But really, the first thing that we're all listening for in our position as engineers is what's in each spectrum of the arrangement. What's the focus in the, this range? Where's the vocal? What's, what's competing the focus? with the vocal? What's the focus? Yeah. Is what's huge. the focus? And what's the focus not monolithically? Like, obviously, the vocal should be the focus. But yeah. in each range, what is the focus? What's the focus in the low end? Is it going to be the bass drum or is it going to be the bass? They can't both coexist in the same space. To a degree, they can, and there's going to be a lot of parallels. But they can't exactly compete in the same space. Or then you wouldn't hear each of them distinguished so this is how mixers are thinking about mixing and arrangements yes and a lot of it it's it's not a it's not a decision it's not an obvious decision each time there's lots of different ways to do it and something that you might think be might, might that you think might be competing with each other it turns out it's a whole different instrument or by just adjusting the space around one of them or the stereo imaging there's lots of ways to separate and there's lots of ways to add things together and what we are trying to talk about is to think about the techniques conceptually um, and then apply the techniques as you see fit based on what you're trying to do and i think a lot let's, of the go ahead let's let's answer a couple of these direct questions here let's start okay, with yeah. with terence how do you guys handle a bad arrangement do you send it back no, no. Well, as a, as a back. producer, I make it better. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah, so yeah. That, and as know, a mixer, I'm the last in line to, to take a stab at making it better. And like Steve Dresser said below, um, major EQ carving could be a thing, like really, really like changing certain sounds. I actually go as bold sometimes as pitching things around. I know that's bad form, but it comes from my production time. I understand uh, that it's not necessarily a mixer's job, but I'll, I'll at least try it and see if I think um, a Wurlitzer and a Rose Rhodes are in the same exact place. I'm like, why did you all do that? Do you want like that janky top end of the Whirly and the smoothness of the Rhodes to match? Well, maybe pitch that up and have that percussiveness of the Wurlitzer sit up top and not compete with the Rhodes or, or try filtering and doing things like that that just induces phase issues and I think more musically about uh, arrangement than um, EQ and, and mix tricks. So I think that that's a, a way to do it. And again, we'll expand on this uh, next week with maybe more tips and tricks. Um, and then how many different ranges would you usually consider from Alexander? That's an interesting question. I think like a five band EQ, I think is the, the, the nice way to think about it. Like sub bass, upper bass to low mid. I feel like that range. changes all the time for me. I, yeah, yeah, but, but the numbers sure. will change. Yeah. But ba bass, low mids mids high mids high end top end or whatever that's like what you would see on a five band parametric eq so that's going to be the most um the most easy to understand what for a mixer that knows their tool set already so i i think of it in that that range like what's what's giving me upper mid-range presence is it only my vocal is there a juno synth like 1999 like that print stabby thing like do we is that going to take up that space? Well, then the vocal needs to sit a little bit below that. And, and that's hearing. That's not, that's, not, um, that's not actually trying things. That's like, well, where is it? What was the intention? Where are these things supposed to sit? And, and, and even conversating with, with the producer about it. Like, hey, I'm not going to send the arrangement back, like the first question. But, hey, so I'm just 
I'm here in this thing. Like you got an eight oh. Like I did this on um, a record for my producer homie uh, Omer. It was just the eight oh eight and no kick. And I thought that like I could make the chorus hit harder if I added a kick layer. And I hit him up before doing it. It was like, hey, is this the intention? He's like, yeah. Can we try a mix like first without the kick. That's kind of what we were going for. And then I wound up like adding some transients and punch to the eight oh eight, and it kind of wound up working. And we didn't add it, you know. But before that, I thought to ask. I'm like nothing changes in the chorus here besides the vocal melody lift. Like, what if we add a kick and it just change, you know, changes the arrangement, but it wasn't there. It wasn't the attention um, intention. And I ask, I'm trying to uh, learn that communication is key in, in, <laughs> um, in all aspects of life. But, but when it comes to collaboration, like I just had a podcast come out today, um, anatomy of an artist podcast with yeah. my friend, Kelsey Verite. And we, we talk about this for a good, like five, 10 minute segment, which is this idea of the black box mix engineer. You just send off and nobody, nobody hears from you. You get a mix back. And then the artist producer, everyone's judging it and goes, it's better or it's not. What if you had an open dialogue? What if, you know, just what if, and <laughs> let, let it be collaborative. Let conversation be collaborative. Let collaboration be collaborative, right? Like it is inherently collaborative. Very few people do it all by themselves. And I find when it comes to arrangements, communication is key. Checking in and saying, hey, is this what you were going for? I'm wondering if we're missing um, you know, some bass. I'm wondering if we're missing some chordal element in the uh in the in the chorus that is, you know, that could could create a a, a deeper, rich emotional connection when this vocal melody goes up an octave or up to the fifth and it feels like more attention building, but the chords aren't supporting that because it's the same sample that's been in from the verse. And just, it's not, it's not fitting right. Um, and you know, it's just, you can't just do that. You need to ask, you need to talk. There's, um, I, I was thinking again, stepping back sort of thinking conceptually, given the way that record making is basically completely moved away from commercial studios. Uh, maybe not completely. There's still, uh, some of that exists, but there's so much more remote conversation and remote collaboration. Or say remote collaboration. I think as a record making professional, you really have to be a communicator. Uh, and if it's uncomfortable for you, practice that shit um, because it's a, it's such an important part of this process. And as uh, it, tying in with that, as we move forward in the streaming world and in these companies who are the pipes through which all of our consumption happens as they keep changing things and adjusting things, telling us sometimes not telling us other times, it may be totally different in two years from now. It's definitely going to be different in some capacity. Part of uh, you and I and the people listening and, and the, the, the goals of a lot of the people listening is to ultimately become the trusted professional. So, you know, when people, people ask a lot of questions, what if a client wants it louder what if, what if this and this, and the answer is there's no one answer to that question. It's based on your relationship with them, your ability to communicate to them, your history with them, their trust in you. Ultimately, what you want to do as a professional is not just have the skills to do it, but be able to instill confidence and trust in the people yeah. who are hiring you. Cause ultimately you want to be in a position like John is where somebody hires you to mix and you hit them up and you go, I know exactly how to do this. You trust me. We've worked with so much stuff before. You don't say all this, but it's the, the, uh, the subjects. Yeah. What if I try this thing with the kick drum and this thing with the roads? Because it seems like you're trying to do this and they go, you're the expert. 
Of course, you know about yeah. loudness, you know about mixing, you've done this a thousand yeah. times, I've done this three times. Like ultimately right. your ability to know about this stuff, know it conceptually, know the numbers, know the theory, be able to talk about it. I mean, even just practicing talking about this is good for me because now mm. when I talk to the next A&R and I go, hey, this rough mix you gave me is crazy, I'm going to cite some of the stuff we've talked about and say, hey, I'm going to bring it in a little bit lower, but it's going to open up the low end. I actually just had this with a project recently, um, mm -hmm. and I'm going to work on more songs on the same project. It's a project you, mm -hmm. you've, you've worked on as well. Um, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and it's a conversation that is difficult to have because it's hard to say, hey, my shit's going to be quieter, but I promise it's better. It's a hard conversation mm -hmm. to have, and you don't want to get into the technical, well, here's, let me explain LUFS to you. A it's only... It's only a hard conversation because in so many fields these days, mixing and mastering included, we've lost the sense of expertise. We've lost the sense of it's okay to assert yourself as an expert because everyone can do it and everyone's opinion matters. Of course that's true, right? It's human nature. We want to accept everyone as, I mean, maybe not everyone does, but um, <laughs> I do. We, we do. And I want to be open to collaboration, but it is my job, and I take it very seriously, and a lot of my peers, the same thing. We take our job and translation of the bodies of work that we touch very seriously, more seriously than I take anything else. I believe that's why I like to be joking around on every other aspect, because I take this part of my life very seriously. And I think it's okay to want to be an expert. It's why I stopped producing. Because I didn't want to be an expert producer. I don't want to be an expert on what it means to be in the room and try to get a great song out of an artist. I want to be the expert at fully realizing the intention and the emotional connection of said piece of music. And I want to do it from a, a younger perspective than people that have been doing it for 40 years, 30 years, 20 years. Because at some point, I'll want some people below me to be doing that younger than me. And I want to be inspired by them. So that's why we all do it. And if you're not doing it for that reason, then I think, I think you might be doing it for the wrong reasons. Or, or you're just doing it and you're not trying to be a professional, and that's okay, too. I mean, part that's of That's true. What, Sorry, I, yes. And, th and that's, a, that's a totally reasonable thing. I think um, the way I always think about it is, how, I guess, I don't know, my, I think my essential skill as a record maker is actually just being able to communicate, understand, and work with the insane artist who doesn't like any business people, who's a total introvert and doesn't trust anyone. I get along with that person. I've worked with several of those artists. Mm -hmm. And then I can also sit in the A&R meeting and talk to the head of the label and the radio promo guy. That's my essential, the, the thing that I think I synthesize uh, as well as most. Um, it's the thing maybe that I'm best at. But that's a really, it's a really weird position to be in because you do want to have all the expert expertise about streaming about lufs all this stuff and then you also need to be able to talk to the artist who goes i love the demo it's it's loud as fuck and it's so exciting why isn't it as exciting and it's my job not to go no you don't understand nope. but to make something and communicate something yes. that makes them go i get it i love it and to be yes. honest that's a huge fucking challenge and it's you don't yeah. always get it right it's and actually a lot it, of fun it's a it's lot of fun a, and it's a, hard a puzzle it's aggravating it's um you get by the like way you, you said it rushing. you said it adrenaline rush aggravating but it's fun and you enjoy it and if yes. you whoever's well, watching how, this, 
wants to be good at doing this thing, you got to find the joy in the challenge of that process. So that's how you learn, right? Yeah. You have to feel agitation. You have to get norepinephrine running through your bloodstream. And then after the 20 minutes of that hard, you were talking about a way to Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to learn, you're going to learn something new. And, and that's, that's, that's challenging. It's, it's, a, it's terrifying to learn new things. It's so it exciting. Always, it always sucks but, at the beginning and it's always, we exciting. have a physical, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, negative affect occurring when we, when we're about to learn something. And like, if we could just sit with it for 10, 20 minutes, um, this is, this is like, there are studies on this, right? This isn't a number I'm making up. Yeah. So it's like, um, but let's just, I want to put a point on uh, the pro concept, the expert concept, because Matt Rulo over here, uh, thank you for pointing out, I didn't actually finish the thought, which mm. is when you go to a surgeon, you know, you have maybe some sort of cancer, you want the expert elite surgeon in that organ, and you don't question who that person is based on the expertise, based on their outcomes, their experience, you just go to them. When I need my sink fixed, I call the plumber. I'm not going to pretend like I know how to fix the leak. The leak be come out from somewhere else and coming from somewhere else that I didn't even think of because it's not my expertise. I hired the plumber. Yes, shout out Huberman Lab for that. Um, and also Lisa Feldman Barrett for all of that stuff too. And everyone else that does neuroscience at Stanford <laughs> and other places. But we, we, I think it's okay to value the expert we do it everywhere else why not in creativity because creativity is subjective and i get it it's it's half from us and it's half for the for the consumer it's not full for either it's going to be collaborative so of course opinions are going to matter in that opinions maybe matter less when it comes to to organ failure so there is still a gray area here but i think we can lean on experts a little bit further than we do now maybe not all the way into the field like that Arguably, engineering, I think, can be because there is a translation um, factor at play. But at the same time, engineers should be sensitive enough to to vibe and not ruin a producer and artist's vibe and be able to do what's necessary to tweak the, the few subtle things that need to be tweaked for it to feel like the full realized intention and translate places. I think that's what a good engineer does. I don't think it's a ground-up overhaul every time. And when it is, I think that's a question and dialogue to need that needs to be opened with the producer and say hey are you looking for me to take this a little bit further like and maybe start over or are you looking for me to just do a tiny bit of polish at the end you know i think it's just a conversation and like you said earlier as trust builds with collaborators you know when and when not to do each of these approaches um you know well, i'll say two two things on the expertise conversation I, I agree with what you said there um i think the the people who are the 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 biggest experts uh, their value is maximized by their ability to communicate in a way that builds trust. Because ultimately, when I go talk to the surgeon, I don't just go, cool, give me the surgeon. You meet with the surgeon, you talk about it, and they instill mm -hmm. confidence in, in, in you. And I don't know how to, you know, I had, I had a, a ulcer, uh, ulcer a, a hernia, an umbilical hernia surgery years ago. And I talked to the guy and he, I don't know anything about cutting open my own stomach, but the, having the conversation with him, he's like, I've done this many before. I've never had to redo one. Here's how we do it. Here's the options. Here's what I would choose. And I got you. And I go, ah, boom. Yes. I want to be that want person when I'm finishing productions, when I'm mixing, when I, so yeah. that 
ultimately expertise is both about having the expertise and then being able to communicate it. And then the other thing is, I tell people this a lot, but the way I became a producer was not because I saw what a producer was and wanted to do it. It's because I liked to learn enough about, I, this is generally in life, I like to learn enough about a topic or uh, or a task or a sport or a whatever to be able to communicate with someone who's really an expert at it. So like by the time I was 16 or 17, I could record things competently because I and I understood when the legends of engineering and some of the books I had what they were talking about I knew everything they were talking about wasn't as good as them but I knew about it but I could play drums well enough to talk to you know my buddy Dave Elich who's one of the best drummers mm -hmm. in the world um, I can talk to him about nerdy drum stuff I can hire him and work with him on things and we get along um, I play enough bass that I understand why James Jamerson is so amazing and why Jocko's amazing. And, but I'm not, mm -hmm. so I, you know, learning about enough of these things to be able to communicate and be comfortable is a place that I think a lot of people who make records should be, even if what you are is a mix engineer, you should know enough about instrumentation, about singing vocals, you about, have how, to. about how a record company works on the other side of it in order yeah. to understand where you fit in the process. And that will increase your ability to communicate with the wide variety of people that are going to be involved. And then you can say, hey, this is going to come in a little bit lower, but it's increasing the dynamic range. So the low end that you get on these records that you're referencing because you're a record company person or these records you're referencing and these sounds because you're the artist, I'm going to make it fit that. And here's how. So don't worry that it comes in a little bit lower. Those sort of conversations come from learning a lot of things and being able to communicate, which is a super, as we always say, a super underrated part of this process. Yeah. Nice. I think, my, <laughs> I, think, I think maybe we should close on that. We have lots and lots of questions. We will do more on loudness next week. We will get into clippers. We will get into saturation. Yeah. We will get into the relationship with that in transients. I do encourage all you guys who are just starting to tune in the last month or two, please check out our one of our early episodes on harmonics and saturation. It'll be a mm -hmm. really good base for what we're going to talk about next week. And also um, the gain, also gain staging. Oh shit! I know there there was a go couple listen of to all thirty four. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but yep. in the in the in the chat there was um, uh, homies of mine from back home uh, to asking about uh, gain staging. So we did. And we I did, wanted to point out. An episode on gain staging, maybe two. I can't remember one or two. Maybe and two. Then, and then we did an episode on uh, harmonics and saturation. They're both on my IGTV. They're on the YouTube. You can get it on Spotify if you just want the audio. Apple, it's it's up everywhere. If you guys aren't subscribed to those things, please do. Please subscribe. Give us hearts. Give us reviews. Say nice things. Share it with people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, man, loudness is such an interesting topic. We will do a lot more next week. Um, and uh, maybe I'll even go over and eat some food at John's. We didn't even talk about food really this whole time. This is, no. this is surprising. But, oh my you know. God, Matt, this was dope. When John said he didn't use compression, I almost gave up on these chats, but I'm back because I love you, John. <laughs> Matt, Matt's an OG, OG homie from Long Island Studio. Um, and he got on me in the DMs about uh, how I do compress because I'm saturating. And I was like, dude, we talk about that. I'm trying to talk about compression as a different, as a, as a tool to achieve something. And, and, you know, anyway, love you, Matt. And, uh, and Bradley in the chat there is helping with show notes. Uh, episode 17 was gain staging. Um, and also, cool. uh, Hendrix, and I'm, I'm going to hit up Iggy after this. We, um, I think we're going to set up a discord server. Um, cool. so we're going to, we're going to have that going in the next week or so. Um, we basically have the site up with show notes with hyperlinks. I'm just going to double check some things and we'll have that up for next week. Um, thank you guys for checking it out. We'll have the uh, audio up uh, tomorrow. John, 
Love you, baby. We'll talk about food next week. Love you. <laughs> Sounds good, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.